Hi everyone, and welcome to Philosophy Rekindled, with our focus book, the 1920 published version of Tertium Organum by P. D. Spensky. Today we are discussing Chapter 15, and we will be covering this chapter in two parts over separate podcasts. This is Part 1. You will find the audio version of this chapter as an additional audio to this podcast, and you'll also find additional information on our website, philosophyrekindle.com. Today my guest is Peter Lancet, hypnotherapist, author and classic scholar, and I'm Alice Flanagan, fiction author, computer programmer and podcaster. Thanks so much for joining us, and welcome Pete. So Pete, Chapter 15, welcome. Hello, hiya. Chapter 15 out of 22, we're getting a fair way through. We are, we are indeed. That's, um, and this one's, this one's the chapter that was promised to be a, a corker in the introduction. So in, in Claude Brandon's introduction, he talked about the chapter on love, and that's this chapter, Chapter 15. So Spensky talks about love and death, and the whole chapter is devoted mainly to love, uh, with a little bit of mention about death. And uh, so let's start. Uh, go on then. Yes, go on then. So as I always do, I'm just going to read the first few sentences just to get us into it, and then we'll, we'll go through. Yeah. So there is not a single side of life which is not capable of revealing to us an infinity of the new and unexpected if we approach it with the knowledge that it is not exhausted by its visibility, that beyond this visibility there is a whole invisible world a world of the, to us, new and incomprehensible forces and relations. The knowledge of the existence of this invisible world, this is the first key to it. So in true Ospensky style, he uh, gives us a, a little teaser about what is to come in the chapter and, and, and the chapter will unfold from here, obviously. So uh, anything you want to say about that first paragraph before I move on? Not really. No, there's not a lot to be said there other than a little teaser. So the next, the next thing he goes on to is, is he wants to talk about the love and death being opposites of each other. So he says, A wealth of newness unfolds to us in the most mysterious sides of our existence, in those sides through which we come into direct contact with eternity, in love and in death. Now when I read this, I thought, what has love and death got to do with eternity? Uh, if you think about the, I suppose, the religious point of view, you know, when you die, you apparently go somewhere eternal. But love, what does he mean by love and death both being linked to eternity? And he does get to this later on in the chapter. But uh, I think at this point, he's, he's really just giving us a, another one of his usual hooks into the rest of the chapter. What are your thoughts? That he's inconsistent. Earlier on in this book, he destroyed dualism, saying that it was a fake aspect of the uh, the result of positivism. And yet here we are. He's he's finding two sides to a coin and he's using dualism to explain something. If he wants to talk about love, just talk about that. I think I'm with you there. I don't understand the connection between love and death. I do. And I'm not going to see. That's what I'm saying. I'm not letting that go. I'm not letting that go. But first of all, let's. Let's get to this idea that, you know, you spent ages wasting my time uh, destroying the idea of dualism and, and poo-pooing it as an aspect of positivism and how it shows us, how it's illusory in its nature. And now you're using dualism. Uh, we don't we could actually discuss either of those things individually on their own without having to relate them 
to the other, but he does. And he he wants us, he obviously wants us to know, oh, you know, I've been around a bit. I know a bit about Hindu uh, religion. And here's the thing. He would have been pretty isolated in that in those days. Now, everybody and their cat seems to think that they know all about it because they all do yoga and everybody will talk about Kali and Shiva and all the rest of it because they don't know much. They know what they've seen on Facebook. So that these, so these are the people that everybody now certainly has a familiarity with Hindu, um, the Hindu religion and Hindu deities. They will, the names won't necessarily be, necessarily be unfamiliar to a mass of people in the way that they were when Uspensky wrote. So, you know, he's perhaps showing off. I don't know. I mean, I really don't know because there was no need to actually relate it. There was no need to actually drop um, Hinduism in there with Kali and Shiva. When I read that, I thought, well, maybe that's why he's linking love and death because he's saying that in Hindu mythology, they're opposites of each other, like good and evil. Well, if you want to relate love and death, I would go with Woody Allen. He made a film of that same name. Oh, did he? What did he say in that? What Did he enlighten us? (laughs) No, not really. I mean, it's Woody Allen. And it's it's, it's set in the Napoleonic War, so (laughs) what can I tell you? But what the point is, the point is that he had related the two words together. This is a common thing that happens uh, throughout human history. It shouldn't come as any surprise. Um, you know, you would think that the opposite of, of love would be hate. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, but we're now looking at a three-sided coin, aren't we? The reason that love and death come together is for, for the reasons that Uspensky then goes on to tell us in the next few paragraphs about the positivism and procreation, because they both they both send humanity into eternity in one way or another. Now, that makes sense. Okay. I'm just trying to think. I was thinking three weddings and a funeral. That's linking love and death. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I digress. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, never mind. Well, never mind. So, so he does. Uh, he does draw that link uh, to the Hindu mythology, and then moves on to the book, the drama of love and death by Edward Carpenter. He further quotes Edward Carpenter, and to be fair, I'm not really understanding what the point is, other than he's pointing out that, again, he's read Edward Carpenter and in some way this is backing him up. Yeah, well, okay, let's, let's just say uh, why he's put that there. There's, there's one critical bit where he says that Carp- in Carpenter's book, Carpenter seems to see love and death fighting their way through the world, trying to get dominion over the, the souls of human beings. You know, one, one wants to, like, um, take over and, and have the human being... Pres- preoccupied with death the other one wants to have that human being that human being the soul or whatever preoccupied by love and it's almost like they're they're in this eternal fight and this battle which is not the way that um the, the hindu uh, gods by the way that he that the Uspensky quotes go through their lives in the in the hindu texts kali is not constantly fighting shiva and in fact both shiva and kali are gods that represent both aspects shiva um, when the third eye of Shiva opens, you know, the world will be destroyed and so on. You know, he's, I am become death, the shatterer of worlds, as Oppenheimer uh, quoted it when he watched the first atom bomb explode. Um, and Kali, um, the goddess of love, also had a murder cult dedicated to her called the Thuggy, from where we get the word thug. And they used to go around and, and capture unweary travellers in the countryside and strangle them with their thuggy rope. 
So, no. you know, really? so there's a, so there's a big difference between what Carpenter sees in the, the dichotomy of love and death and the way that it's portrayed in Hinduism, which is what um, Uspensky enigm enigmatically quoted early in, in this chapter. So you know, that's what mm. Edmund Carpenter's doing, but but Uspensky doesn't go on then and, and point out that difference. <laughs> no, he doesn't. And he, he just sort of has these two things. He's a Hindu mm. and he's Edward Carpenter, just one after the other, and it's it's you know, almost like it's just well let me put something in to say that I I'm I, not the I've only one research this topic. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, another one to back me up. But the point he makes after this I think is quite interesting. He talks about yeah our fascination with more of a fascination with death than we have with love. He says um, that uh, the two aspects of this enigma are not identical, that uh, strange as it may seem, the face of death has ever been more attractive to the mystical imagination of men than the face of love. And, and I'd have to agree with him there. I mean, most religions talk about what's going to happen to you after death and love is almost like a, uh, well, you know, you get married if you love someone and that's... I'll tell you why we're pre preoccupied with death. Because humans fear it. They enjoy love. They like being surrounded by that. Why do I need to examine that terribly much? I know, I know how I feel when I get it and I think it's fantastic. Um, death, they're terrified of. They want an answer. They want an answer that will make death comfortable. That's why human beings are seemingly preoccupied with it. Only artists, as we're going to come on to in a moment, um, don't have that fear. Or they, or certainly, if they do have that fear of death, they overwhelm it by um, concentrating on love and how to represent the emotion. Anyway, uh, I've moved us on a little bit there. But, 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 but that's the reason why we seem preoccupied with death. And I am absolutely amazed that Obspensky hasn't worked that out himself. And put it there. It really is quite obvious and quite reasonable. It's why every single great religion dwells upon it, upon what happens after death, with the exception of one major religion, and that's Christianity, which doesn't. In its Gospels, yes, of course, it mentions death and all the rest of it. And oh, you know, if you if you if you're not a good person, blah. They do not dwell on it though. Um, the way that that religion then spread around the world is a different matter. And the way, you know, the way that it was used to justify horrific ends and, and, and go into, let's call it the dark side, is neither here nor there. The Gospels, which are very, very simple and much shorter and contain much less events than people think, um, it concentrates on one thing only, love. Love being the key and the answer to everything. So, you know, we do have that. Uh, it, is, it is right there. But most religions concentrate on death and follow, uh, you know, pushing the Gospels to one side. Um, the Christian religion is also concentrated on death and fear. But the religions have actually generated the fear rather than, <laughs> rather than try to explain it, uh, which is a different thing. I guess with death, you, you don't actually get to prove whether what's been told is right or wrong until you're gone. No, you don't. But you, love, but you can with you, love. You, you, yeah, love, you can you can justify it. So it's almost like, well, we'll, we'll tell you about this thing you can't prove and you don't know anything about. And as you say, you fear. Um, and we'll be the experts on that. And, uh, you know, 
love they as Spensky is saying is the way they they handle love is to kind of strangle it, put some some standards and some rules around it, and and contain it into some um, pigeonhole or bucket that it needs to to be defined by. And uh, he says that's in, in effect they third dimensionalize love. Well, why wouldn't you? I mean, an interesting thing that um, Spensky's put is, in reality, love is, for us, the same enigma as death, yet for some strange reason we think about it less. What the hell is strange about it? It's completely obvious, not just to me, but to millions of people, why we think about death more. It's not not a strange thing that we think about it less at all. But do we think about death more? Yeah, we do. I mean, I've got a load of friends who think about being in love more than anything else. Okay, okay, let me ask you a question then. We are living in, I mean, I don't care when people listen to this, we'll make sure that people know. We're living through a coronavirus lockdown. In other words, uh, a virus COVID-19, which doesn't actually exist, it doesn't, and I will say it right now, it doesn't, it's non-existent. How many people in Australia are obeying the lockdown? Well, please. Uh, it's not a rhetorical question, I'd like to... With a hefty fine for not doing so, I'd say the majority, the vast majority. Okay, before we had a fine put in here, everybody was obeying it, mostly everybody. Few people went out and they used that as an excuse to give extraordinary police powers to on-the-spot on fine people. But the vast, vast majority of people were staying home. And I happen to know that that was the case in Australia, so it was partly rhetorical. Um, so I'm telling you right now, <laughs> Fear is in their minds a lot more than love. Love is something that they will allow to preoccupy them when they're not frightened of anything else. The moment somebody puts death on the agenda, boom, 100% preoccupation. You're on Facebook, I'm on Facebook. You know full well what's going through everybody's timeline at the moment. Hideous, hysterical, stupid people who've been terrified who've been hypnotized into self-hypnotizing their own terror are putting down about how look at those idiots going out endangering lives endangering him in what way going for a walk in the park i don't think so so let me just explain to you we're living in a time that absolutely demonstrates that human beings are far more preoccupied by death at the subconscious and conscious level when it appears than they ever will be by love we don't think about love as much because it doesn't it doesn't frighten us. This amygdala cortex, this, this reptilian thing of fear and flight and fight or fight, these responses, they kick in big time. Death is never far away from us. Every time you see a funeral cortege going down the road, um, it will kick something in. You will when you get a... When you see, if you were, if you were going past a church where a couple are getting married, you might turn and think, oh... How fantastic and get a lovely feeling from it. But believe me, that won't last as long as uh, or or occupy your thoughts in the same way that seeing a funeral does. There's loads of evidence about this, by the way. If anybody wants to go and do psychological, the, the research into the psychology of this, just about every university will have done something on it. You can find tons of evidence on it. I'm amazed that Ospensky uh, thinks it's strange that we think about death more than than love. Because we fear it, and that and it preoccupies us, and we know it's coming. We do know it's coming. As far as we're aware, from the positive point of view, every single human being that's ever lived has died or is going to die. So, so we know it's coming. 
and we fear it. When's it coming? Will I be young? Will I not do anything? Will I, will I die with regret? Will it be horrible, long and painful? We fear it. That's why we, we are more preoccupied with it than love. It's not even our own mortality. It's, it's more about losing others as well. It is about losing others. It's not more about, though. I will, I would argue that. I will argue that case. It's not more about losing others. It is about that. That does come into it, and particularly from a, a point of view of a mother. But even with a mother, you know, it's like I'm still worried about my death. You know, uh, it it does work. It, it is right there in human beings. It's why it's right there. Um, we're going to come on to something in in a moment that I uh, I won't preempt it, but uh, I will bring this back up when we get to it. So anyway, okay. I think I think we've done the point because honestly, that it surprised me that a thinking analyst like Ispensky couldn't work that out for himself. But it but there it is. Well, yeah. So look, that's that's all he says about death, and then the rest of the chapter is dedicated to love and. Yeah. He, he finds, well, first of all, he finds a problem of love. He says that, uh, uh, but the problem of love in the contemporary way of looking at the world is regarded as something given, as something already understood and known. I don't believe that it's a given. This is why people spend so much time ruminating about, ruminating about it. Whether, when they feel comfortable enough that death is a distance away, then a lot of people think about love. And you gave the example of all of your friends. I don't agree with Spensky mm-hmm. there. We don't take it as a given. We wonder about it all the time. Well, say we, a lot of people do. I can't speak yeah. for everybody in, on the on earth, but I, I mean, lots of people do. They think about it all the time. And what is it? And what does it mean? Am I in love or is it just lust? Are we actually then differentiated? You get that those first pangs, but then we have people telling me, but that's not real love. It's when those first, like, you know, um, the, the lust aspect of it is gone. It's what's left, if there's anything left. That, that's real love and, and we have people we people are talking about it all the time and we're going to come on to something else next with art yeah well they, they're talking about it all the time and they're defining it all the time exactly they're, and they're trying to analyze it all the time yeah and i love them like this or i love them like that because i did this and showed my love for them you know it's like well you know even if it was really? just control freakery and narcissism but, we'll yes. <laughs> but we're not going to get into yes. that <laughs> Well, yes, but it, that that's, that word is used a lot by those people. But anyway, let's move on. So, so he goes on to say, uh, but art chiefly confines itself merely to descriptions and the psychological analysis of love, seldom touching those infinite and eternal depths which love contains for man. So he's giving art a, a bit of a, a, a run for its money here and saying that even art treats love as superficial and doesn't get down to the essence of it. I would have thought, now if he's talking about painting, or he's talking about art, the arts, like poetry, writing, etc., I'd have to disagree, because I think that is the point of the arts, isn't it? To get down to the essence of something that can't be explained. Mm -hmm. I've got this line that I I underlined, you know, and... Which is the same thing, but even art chiefly confines itself merely to descriptions and to the psycho- psychological analysis of love, seldom touching those infinite and eternal depths which love contains for a man. And I'm going to say, I, I put my comment about that, which I underlined, was rubbish. This is a mathematician talking, and you can see it. For all that he's decried positivism, there you go, there's a scientist for you. 
Um, he has, he hasn't, he doesn't get art at all. Why he even bothers looking at it or reading it, I have absolutely no idea. He doesn't get it at all. That is so dismissive, and he doesn't. He just doesn't get it. Because I'm with you. Art does far more than that. This is why it is the wellspring that we turn to when we need that kind of nourishment. Just because Uspensky yeah. doesn't get it doesn't mean doesn't mean that that's what it, how it is. I mean, Uspensky's ideas here are to me incredibly stupid. And I'm going to use that word. I, I'm using it carefully. I think it's stupid. He's made. He's he ha, he's taken the fact that throughout the history of humanity, people have struggled to express the non-positivistic and the 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 supernatural dimension of love, and how it affects human emotion and so on. And he's dismissed all of it. He's dismissed all of it in, in a summary sentence, wondering why humans for tens of thousands of years, and possibly longer, we won't go into that, um, have struggled with this to express it in a three-dimensional way so that it can become understandable to people who are not in con communication with extra-dimensional existence. He's just totally dismissed it, and I, I'm not going to give him a pass on it. You're wrong, Dispensky. That 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 allusion to art is complete nonsense. And look, even later in the chapter, when he he starts to talk about love as being that essence of creativity that manifests in this dimension as creativity, you must say that the arts is the creative. That's the, that's, that's the arts as the medium are the media through yes. which it does that. What the hell is wrong that's with the man? Right. So, <laughs> duh. <laughs> so even in this one chapter, he goes further on to say that, but here he's saying, and, and it's like, what would be his reason to say something like that? It, it achieves nothing. It's not getting into the, the topic that he wants to discuss in this chapter is not that. It's because he's a scientist and a mathematician, and he actually has probably felt that he's never experienced it. I think he's as cold as a fish. I, I really do. Yeah, maybe so. He just, okay, yeah. let me tell you. We're on chapter 15. Tell me where the warmth is in this, in this book. Where is the warmth? There isn't any. Not a jot. This is the book that anybody could tell you if they bother reading it. It's been written by a scientist, and, a, and in this case, a mathematician. And believe me, it's all maths and it's no emotion. Yeah, well, he is, yeah, as we said, a mathematician. And I guess yeah. you know, it takes all types, doesn't it? Um, well, uh, yeah, well, you say that, you say that, but Stephen Hawking is also a mathematician and a cosmologist. Well, he was, he's dead now, obviously. Um, yeah, you read A Brief History of Time, just read that alone, the one that he gave to the general public, and there is warmth in it. There is warmth there and humor and and lots of genuine emotion that make it readable this is this is why it's almost this is almost a strange chapter for him to even include because uh he has clearly well or it appears it's not clear it appears that he has zero familiarity with this topic he feels that he has to include it because of the sake of completeness but i'm not getting the fact I'm not getting an idea that there's any enthusiasm here uh, or or any real experience of this subject matter. And certainly no experience of art because the the way that he traduces art in this way is 
in the, in the context of this particular chapter and this particular topic of love, it's absolutely scandalously breathtaking. It's astonishing that he would do that to art. It really is astonishing. <laughs> I think especially when he, he talked art up as the only medium to getting into the other dimensions in previous Let chapters. Let me tell you, I, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say what I've said before. I think he is just blurbing what other people have told him or what he's read in other people's works, like in Blavatsky's Theosophy and so on and so on and so on and so on. Um, I don't think he's had any experience of this stuff at this point. I just don't. Because yeah. I, th well, oh, I think yeah. he's doing is trying to put into his words, i.e. the words of a mathematician, this stuff that he's found exciting to read but hasn't been able to connect with. That, that's how I feel. I might be wrong about that. I, I cannot know it. Well, I, I will say I did get something out of this chapter further I'm on. I'm not saying that, but, uh, I, you know, but, yeah, no, I, I, I hear what you're saying. But I think he's used this chapter in a lot of ways to uh, have a go at religion and to have a go at uh, various um, authors. Well, once again, he's used the wrong tool for the job. He's used a screwdriver where he should have used a spanner. Or a hammer, or whatever the heck. I, you know, he, if I wanted to use a tool to demolish something, I wouldn't try to use a tool that I didn't know how to use. And he doesn't. I, I, I simply wouldn't. You know, there's no point in me getting in a JCB and trying to operate a digger. I have got no idea how those things work or, or what, what the controls are of it. I'd be better off picking up a sledgehammer, <laughs> it would take me longer. But, uh, you know, I, I honestly, I'm not giving him a pass on this chapter. I, I, I think that he's ill fit to write about love. So, uh, but we need to go through, we need to go through the points that he's trying to make and see if we can get something out of, out of this. See, see, see if there's a point that relates, that takes us the next step from the previous chapters. Mm -hmm. So, so that see if, there's, if, if there is a journey that we're on with this book yeah so so let's let's yeah. keep going so let's keep going so now he, he makes this point and he says that uh that love is often seen as a hindrance to spiritual evolution and therefore the religions put it into that realm that you have to be denied of it if you want to be spiritually evolved if you and and i guess one of the classic examples of that is the catholic priesthood having to be celibate um so he says it, it well... I'll, well, that I'll, wasn't um, always the case, by the way. It wasn't, was it? And it, I think no. uh, from my memory... That's a medieval in, invention. So that they didn't have to hand down the church property to their children, I'd imagine. Something, <laughs> something materialistic like that. There is something materialistic like that. So Spensky's still going through and he's really, he's, he's giving us what we think of love as opposed to what it actually, well, what he believes it is. He's talking about how love has been taken by religions and given a negative spin. It's been put forward as you can have one or the other. You can, you can have the physical experience of love or you can have a spiritual evolution. And, but you can't have both. So if you're going to be spiritual, you have to deny yourself the, the love aspect of your life, which is is kind of interpreted as being the physical 
you know, sexual love mm-hmm. aspect of your life. And that's that's the part that he's talking about in this, this couple of paragraphs is how love has been given a bad rap. Yeah, okay. Well, we, we, we can actually say, yeah, that, that is how they they developed. He, he specifically mentions Christianity and Buddhism and in the, the major um, sects of Christianity, that is exactly how it developed. It has developed and is. Um, Buddhism, yeah. Um, empty-headed meditation, sure. That's that's the aspirational goal, isn't it? I mean, what's mm-hmm. the what's the big what's the big um, theme of Christianity that that the lead figure is full of passion and compassion and died for us. The lead figure in Buddhism sat under a tree for God knows how long and emptied his head. I does that make me sound like I'm belittling it? Possibly. Um, but I see people who, the same people who will talk of karma as being a revenge bitch, are the same people who aspire to empty-headed meditation. I, it's all about emptying your mind, blah, blah, blah. Great. Go, go with that. Waste your life. Have zero experience of living. Carry on. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, Aspensky is not is not uh, condoning this either. He's he's saying, you know, this is this is what's happened to it, and very little uh, is love looked upon as a cosmic phenomenon. He says, in reality, love is a cosmic phenomenon in which men, humanity, are merely accidents. Right there, prove it, prove it, Aspensky. Just prove that you've made that as a direct statement. Drivel, prove it. And what does he mean by merely accidents? Well, I, no, I don't. Uh... That, that is that is the phrase. Um, yeah. Do I sound angry? Yeah, angry. I don't feel anger, but I am. I I will not let him get away with this drivel that he does all the way through this book. I'm I'm not going to let him get away with that. He he says it as though we're supposed to just accept it and moves on. No. I don't believe it for a moment, and it's certainly not my experience. No, yeah, I'm not letting him get away with that. Prove it. Come back from the grave and prove that one. Accident. It's a hell of a word. No, we're not. If we are, everything is. Where do you go with that one, Spensky? Because if we're the, if we're an accident, because I know what he's going to use as an example soon, a candle. Um, so, yeah, if we're the heat, what was the purpose? And why would why would something with a greater intelligence than us and a great much greater intelligence and a purpose um, shove us around as a, as an accident? Why wouldn't they just create something that just did the purpose? The all powerful um, creator of all things. Come come now, come come now. Even even things if we have a hierarchy of creators, which perhaps we do, you know. Um, they would be given the power to do the thing, to, to do the job without the waste. I don't think there's any accident in the universe. Carry on, Spensky, prove this to me. I'm, and I, by the way, I'm not making, I'm not making humanity the center of all things. I'm saying that everything in the universe, not just on this planet, has its purpose. And I'm going to tell you that if, if you try to claim that one thing in the universe is just a, an accident, the, uh, and, you know, the accidental byproduct of some other great thing. I'm going to I'm going to ask you to prove that you can't just say that and move on because he's I mean, bear in mind the the first two words of that sentence are in reality. 
Yes. In reality, love is a cosmic phenomenon. By the way, cosmic phenomenon in italics, uh, in which men, humanity are merely accidents. So what is what is the action that's going on from which we are merely byproducts, the waste that gets scrapped into the bin? I think what his point is, because he further goes on to say that it exists, cosmic phenomenon, it's a cosmic phenomenon, it exists irrespective of what we do with it. So he kind of likens it to the sun. The sun shines regardless yeah. of the fact that we go about our business and use the sun, enjoy the sun or whatever, but it's not... The sun has nothing to do with us, just as, well, as this okay, cosmic phenomenon that. has nothing to, with, to do prove, with that with us. Prove that. Prove that. I'm going to I'm going to come right here, and I'm going to come right out and say that the sun is a vast intelligence whose job it is to govern this this system around it, and possibly more the solar system on many dimensional levels. It is a vast intelligence as is the earth, and the earth is responsible for what goes on, on and within it. Um, and the solar system is responsible for its whole system. I'm going to call it a vast intelligence. You prove me wrong, Ispensky, because that's how I understand it, and that's what I see, and that's what I experience. So no, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to give him a pass on a single word. He's give, when he comes out with statements, he's going to have to go further than this to prove it. I don't think he's saying that the sun isn't isn't uh, anything. I think no, what he's you just saying did. is, sorry, I just did. You, yeah, you just did. It has a cosmic phenomenon which has nothing to. Uh, let me let me re reiterate that which has nothing to do with either the lives or souls of men any more than because the sun is shining by its light, men may go about their affairs and may utilize it for their own purposes. In other words, we're byproducts. And the sun doesn't care about us. It's got another big job to do, shining its light. And uh, the fact that we can use it is neither here nor there. That's what I'm saying. Prove that one. The sun gives us what it gives because we need to have it for it to complete its purpose. Oh, I and see what purpose. you're saying. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So I, my point was a little different. It was saying that the sun does what it does. And then mm. he's saying that, uh, you know, regardless of what we do with it, it it's doing what it's doing. Exactly. But I, I and I'm, saying, and saying, I'm, and yeah. I'm saying that that's not right. I'm saying that that's yeah. not no, right I at hear all. The, the sun shines for us because we need it. And it, it has decided that here we are. This is what I'm going to have here. And, oh, what I've created there needs light. I'd better shine on it. We, it is absolutely integral. We are, boom, we are locked together with the sun's intention i use that word carefully the sun's intention intelligent intention we have the light because we the sun knows that we need it there is nothing incidental about what the sun does so by analogy there is no, nothing incidental about what love does i'm going to say that i'm going to say that mm. it, it is an integral part and the idea that he has divorced it from the souls of men which he has um is for me, insulting and ludicrous. And he doesn't prove it. He doesn't explain it. And not that he's any good at explaining, as we've seen all the way through the book, but he he doesn't even try. I, I think it's terrible. I, I you know, I know you would you would die to do this this chapter. But I, I find No, it, I was. I, find <laughs> I, I, I find it appalling. I find it appalling. All but anyway, right. we're only on we're only on the third page of it. Yes, I know. We've got many to go. Shall, shall, so, shall we go to the bit where he says perhaps? 
Perhaps love is a world of strange spirits. Is that the perhaps? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. Why don't you Why don't you take us there, Pete? Because I looked at that paragraph and went, "What the hell is he talking about here?" Because I mean, it just looks like he's he's breaking out into song or something. I almost felt like I was in a musical. <laughs> something. <laughs> perhaps love is. Perhaps it's a bag of coal. Perhaps. Perhaps it's an oil well. Perhaps it's a, a little boy pissing in a stream. I mean, for God's sake, perhaps. What what use is that to us? Perhaps love is a world of strange spirits who at times take up their abode in men, subduing them to themselves, making them tools for the accomplishment of their inscrutable purposes. Yeah, what if it's a shovel? Perhaps is not a good word. And that whole paragraph is really, uh, it's saying nothing. It's almost, it's almost mocking... It's almost mocking our understanding of love by saying, well, you know, all, all these things, uh, you might as well I mean, call it these he, things for what you yeah, understand says, of it. Perhaps it's an alchemical work of some great master wherein the souls and bodies of men play the role of elements out of which is compounded a philosopher's stone or an elixir of life, both in inverted commas, I mean, both in italics, or some mysterious magnetic force necessary to someone for some ins- incomprehensible purposes. Well, you know, you've dismissed something really important there. Yeah, perhaps it is provided as an aspect of the universe or the multiverse that is absolutely critical to the working of the universe. And remember, he's written that just a few lines after he said... Um, in reality, love is a cosmic phenomenon, and then I'll go on, a cosmic phenomenon which has nothing to do with either the lives or the souls of men. So he said that it's got nothing to do with the lives or souls of men, and then two paragraphs on tells us that perhaps it has. Oh, for God's sake, which is it? Well, I, I think he's tongue-in-cheek there. I think he's uh, saying, I don't well, think you he guys... has a sense of humour. I don't. <laughs> so you can say no, that. Well, but maybe. I, I will not agree with you. I don't think he does. Well, the reason I say that is because the next paragraph basically says, look, you don't understand what love is, <laughs> but if you accept that you don't understand it, then maybe you will start to understand the higher purposes. Uh, you'll find the, the end of the thread that you can start uh, working through all the, and I'll use his words, labyrinth of earthly contradictions. So it's it, from what I can see, he's saying, look, you've been told all these things, you've made up all these things, that what love is, but in fact it's all rubbish. And if you just could put that down and uh, start to accept that you don't know anything, then you might start to know something. That's what I think he's saying. And that's why I think this paragraph before, he's got, you know, he's basically mocking. He's having a mockery. Yeah, but I don't agree with him. Okay. So he says love is intangible. If you can put down all the understandings that you have or have been told and understand that you know nothing of love, then you have a chance to to reassess it. He's talking about the noumenal life, that what you would see past this third dimensional state of, of what things are in themselves. Okay, so the, the sentences were that love is part of the numinous and if we stop trying to analyze it in the third dimension and try to try to grasp uh, an experience of it from a point of view that we know nothing about it and let it come to us uh, then perhaps we'll have the key to the universe 
Is this, this that's what, exactly is that, that's what I was nutshell. trying to say. Nutshell, fine. Yeah. Okay. That's exactly what human, humanity has been trying to do for thousands of years. So moving on, Uspensky, perhaps mathematicians haven't been trying to do it, and it might have sounded novel to him, but it wasn't novel to huge swathes of humanity. The reason poets struggle with love, and, and poets, particularly poets, will come out with, I'm really trying to express something that I feel, uh, that I sort of understand, and I want you to understand it, but words are inadequate, and it's difficult, it's re and, and this is why we're doing it. Spensky makes it sound like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm now telling you what you need to do to make this. No, poets have done that all for thousands of years. It's not new what he's telling us. We have been doing this with Spensky. It might be new to you. It's certainly not new to humanity. And it's certainly not new to people who have more of an emotional life than you have. That's what I would say to Spensky, were he alive now. And look, to be fair, I think we really only get to the crux of this chapter in, you know, really the second half. Because yeah. this, this beginning bit is just really coming in and going, you understand nothing. You've been told all this stuff from religions and from whatever your experience is on a three-dimensional plane, but it's all rubbish. And even magic and Hindu and philosophy and all yeah. that haven't really grasped it. So... But don't worry, me, the mathematician, I'm going to tell you all about it. <laughs> That's a bit like going to, I want to learn about heart surgery, so I'm going to go to a circus clown. Same thing. Yeah. Well, look, he does um, come to say that yeah. uh, the cosmical understanding of love can be found, and, and I don't understand this next bit, in the phallic foundation of Hindu mythology, occultism, alchemy, and magic. He does come out with yeah. that statement here. So it does. you've got I've, I've actually yes. mentioned earlier on in previous chapters that that sex and libido is the key to magic. And I said, and whenever you get these modern pagans saying, oh, it's just symbolic. You only have to have a symbol of the phallus and a symbol of the womb, you know, and so a wand and a cup and all this. I'm telling you right now, pe people who seriously practice magic don't. The, yeah. the energy that you generate through sex is vastly important in the creative process of magic so you know um yeah i'll go with that yeah and we have talked about that in the last chapter oh sorry mm. in chapter in previous 12. Yeah, uh, yeah yeah previous chapter chapters I knew, so, I knew we had yeah yeah so i mean he's he's that's where he's there where he's coming to is saying oh i guess um he's saying that somebody has a bit of a clue and that is in these in these practices but uh the rest of you, you, you know nothing. So go and have a look at those. In the next couple of pages that I've got, in, in essence he's saying um, love doesn't have its source in man. It lies on another plane and its purpose is partly used on the material plane because it transforms uh, itself into instincts, ideas, creative forces, music, poetry. So in other words, it's he's sort of saying, it's it's on another plane, but it filters down into this plane through these channels, through our instincts, our ideas, our creative forces, music, yeah. poetry, intuition, and he said ultimately from a you know into a higher consciousness. So it's it's. Um, so he's so he's he's now decided a couple of pages later that the arts are correct. the medium. Okay, which uh, no wonder yeah, he tore that which, page out because he contradicted himself. <laughs> I know, that's what I said to you. It's like, uh, yeah, you did. Here he is, and a couple of pages later, he's, he's doing something else. Um, 
he, he talks about the transformation of energy and uh, he says that the superfluous so I think I think this was an interesting bit we we, we did get to the candle um, yeah analogy. I mentioned the candle and it is here so take the example of a common candle is the way that my paragraph starts yes exactly so and and I guess the, I liked his point because he does say that you know we, we use a candle to give us light but it does give off considerably more heat than it does light. Uh, and I guess in mm-hmm. his day, that would be mostly what you live in. In my day, too, because I, I run um, shamanic drumming uh, workshops here in my, in my therapy center, okay? And I light the place with candles. I only use candles because I'm generating atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And we will all tell you when we're drumming, this room is incredibly hot and it's the candles. It, it literally mm. is the candles. It is this byproduct. So even in the winter, I, I can't, well, I don't have the heating on at all because I know that by the time I've got all these candles going, and I must say, you know, there's probably more than 20, you know, about 20 candles burning in this in my therapy center. The bloody place is red hot. It's red yeah. hot. Yeah. You know, and so we and it's a that. byproduct of the light that it's providing. So it's a, a well, I, I'm going to say that. But once I found out, um, you know, once I discovered how how hot the place was getting, I actually did use it. It wasn't just like a throwaway. I was able to use more of the effect of the the candles are now not just giving me atmosphere; they're also heating the place. I I consciously use it. Mm. Well, yes, to your advantage. Yeah, so, great. so Spensky is using this analogy to say that the superfluous energy of love can transform itself into higher intuition and higher consciousness. So he's kind of using the analogy that that we have this uh, physical energy of love, which is, you know, I presume he's talking about the you know sex, etc., mm-hmm. emotions, our feelings, our desires, all those physical things. Uh, and they, but there are any well, aspects an emotion, of it. Is, hang on, is an emotion a physical thing? Well, I would have thought so. Is it? it well, it manifests physical. physical. Oh, well, I feel yeah. an emotional so, emotion. Hang on, hang on. You, okay, you sure about that? You have an effect. It, it might have a physical effect. This is the. This is exactly the point that he's making. That you know, um, that it doesn't. I mean, he's when he talks about the candle. I think it's important to work out, and I don't know whether you've got this bit, where he says, the fact remains that the light is received from a candle only because of combustion. In other words, the main purpose of the candle is combustion. The the light is incidental. Now, we might look at the light and say, we want the light. But we're going through a, a, a process of combustion without realizing that that's what we're doing. And then we wonder why we get hot when the candles are burning. It's a very big point, and he's put that yeah. in italics in my in my book. Yeah, he has a mind the, as well. Yeah, that's the, very the true. fact remains that light is received from a candle only because of combustion. In other words, the main purpose is the combustion; that the light is the incidental part. That's interesting. Yeah, you're right there. He does say that, and he says by development of the heat mm. and the incandescence and of the incandescent gases. volatilized gases. Yeah, and then he says the same is true in the case of love. We may say that it is. Um, I've underlined this. We may say that a merely negligible part of love's energy goes into posterity. The greater spent is the greater part is spent by the fathers and mothers on their personal emotions, as it were. Mm. So, in other words, the emotion isn't physical because the 
energy that goes into posterity is the energy of making children. That's the posterity. And he, he's quite clear about that. Yeah, yeah. So the greater part is spent on the fathers and mothers, on their personal emotions, as it were. But this is also necessary. Without this uh, expenditure, the principal thing could not be achieved. Rubbish. First of all, I'm the product of the opposite of that. There are millions of children in the world that are the opposite of that. One night stands and God knows what else, where children never know the father. And, and God knows the mothers in some cases don't know the father. It, so, no, it's not necessary. It is what the religions that he decries have prescribed for us as a family unit. In hunter-gatherer societies, it's unnecessary. It's completely unnecessary because the community looks after the posterity of the community. We don't we don't have family groups in the same way. We don't find family family units, nuclear families in the same way. So I'm afraid that I don't agree with that. So what happens to what happens to love when people have a drunken one night stand and never see each other again and produce children? The, that's not being spent by the mothers and fathers, is it? By, you know, their emotions and, and, and all the rest of it that he describes here. So move away from that, Espansky. And let, and let's move on. But you don't think he's he's talking about just the base act of creating children by sexual activity is the well, posterity? Yeah. Like, are you saying that it's it's more than that? It's more about looking well, after no, raising he's, children. He's saying that we may say that a merely negligible part of love's energy goes into posterity. In other words, yep. having a shag to create a child is the negligible part. Yep. The greater part is spent by the fathers and mothers on, and I'll quote, their personal emotions, as it were. But this is also necessary. Without this expenditure, the principal thing could not be achieved. In other words, the principal thing, the principal thing being the creating the posterity. See, I took that to mean, you know, the the desire to have said shag uh, and and the emotions that went into uh that's attracting the two people together well that's what i'm thinking he's talking about as love's energy not not it okay right Let, let's let's go with that um only because these at first sight collateral results of love only because all of this tempest of emotions feelings effervescences desires thoughts dreams fantasies inner creations only because of the beauty which it creates can love fulfill its immediate function explain well, doesn't sound like he's describing a drunken one night stand that has no meaning for either of the participants. And that and if it does, I don't think it has where, to have meaning. The, I think I think it has to have well, feelings and emotions and desires and and you know even even if you're having a drunken shag you still want to do it. Uh I, we, I don't think do, you, <laughs> I don't think you have to have uh, a feeling of of uh love per se. It's desire, it's you know lust. Okay, then how, you know, you're missing what he's actually said there, though. Okay. Um, how, he's saying that that's the negligible bit. How is that the, how do you, how are we quantifying that the, that the fact that I'm drunk and I see an ugly bird and because I'm drunk think she's fantastic and I have the one night stand, well, the, the five minutes stand <laughs> or whatever it is and then never see her again. Okay, how does, how is that the, the, the main part how where where is the 
the most important part of love coming into that because he's claiming the greater part is spent by the fathers and mothers on their personal emotions as it were well i i'm telling you that that i don't feel like i'm spending anything there so i need this explaining how the quantification comes about because if that girl happens to get pregnant uh she's going to be expending an awful lot more energy on that physical three-dimensional aspect of what's just happened than she ever did on the um the run-up to what actually caused that i, I i'm missing something here then alice okay. and you need to explain well, I, that to me yeah all right well in my understanding of this i think what he's saying is there is an expenditure of energy in having a shag, and that is a byproduct of the desire to have said shag. That you you might be in the drunken state or not, but you you get the I want a shag. Someone else you find conveniently also wants a shag, but you, all that emotion that you both have to have said shag is the main part of the energy spent and the minimal part is the i don't know 30 seconds of you know uh, a knee um trembler up against the back wall of the pub you know okay. it's sort of that's what i think he's saying all right then. but it could but be wrong i, I mean i will no I, I will take your point for the sake of moving on but i would just like to say that the following sentence is it doesn't seem to be saying that when it goes only because of these at first sight, collateral results of love only because of this. And here we go. Tempest of emotions, feelings, effervescences, desires, thoughts, dreams, fans. It doesn't sound like he's talking about the drunken whim of a moment. It really does. He's using language that you, that really does, is used to describe a man and a woman coming together and pledging their troth forever. It, that's the language that's being used. I'm going to go with you. I'm going to take, I'll, I will accept your, your interpretation of that. But that, that makes that those, those words that follow, it makes them incredibly strange. I do take your point there, Pete, because yeah, he does, he does romanticize. He does put a romantic, uh, bent on, on this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost as and if you know what you, only... the way you yeah sorry sorry to interrupt you but the way you described it if if the if what he meant was what you described your description of it was a thousand times more concise and understandable than this mishmash of drivel if what you, well, if your you. interpretation <laughs> is spot on then he should have said it like that and moved on because yeah when he's what he's done and by the way what I'm talking about is the biggest part of the paragraph. It oh, it really is. is. It is. He has, he, has spent, he has spent a long time talking about tempests of emotions and feelings and effervescences. Honestly, I'm, I thought I was reading Elizabeth Barrett, except that I knew that I wasn't because Elizabeth Barrett is a far better writer than Uspensky. <laughs> and certainly a far better, far better at convey, conveying emotion than Uspensky, because I don't think he's got any. I really don't. This this chapter on love is, it's almost frightening just how flat, how flat and cold Do you know, if, if I was to nutshell what I got out of this chapter in mm -hmm. two sentences, I would say that love is an, a creative energy that we tap into and use to create uh, beauty and things that we love to have around us so it's it's our creative 
source. Okay. Uh, so that's what I think he's saying. But one, Love is, but one, one person's beauty, remember, is another person's ugliness and vice versa. And I, I oh yeah, it's him. a personal thing. Yeah, it's a personal mm, thing. Subjective. You know, what, what we, yeah, what we. You manifest. You manifest your own miracle. You manifest your own stunning life, right? You exactly do. right. Exactly right. And I, and I think because Hitler manifested his, and it wouldn't go down well with a lot of people. No, no. And I, I, I probably can't reconcile that with him tapping into love. But then again. Um, it Why does not? have Hang on, you, you, well, oh. it does have its, it does have an opposite. If if we look at infinity, well, that's the other thing he mentions here that love is the infinity. So if it is infinity, it has, it has to have its opposite, doesn't it? Love. If love, if is, love is the basis of all creativity, which, by the way, every occultist will tell you that it is, and and everybody that's experienced it, rather than people that just read books or or wish that they were pagans, the people that have it, they will, they'll tell you that it is. When you manifest something for yourself that other people see as ugly and evil, it's still your love for what you wanted to manifest has been the cause, the, well, the engine uh, of that manifestation. It's not the cause, it's the engine. Um, so don't, you can't do that. You, you know, you can't say, oh, well, it can be used for evil as well. You know, blah, blah. It's still love. It is the, this is the whole point. It is the same damn thing. It is the same thing. It's the same. Well, let's call it energy for the sake of, of something else. But it's this numinous thing, love, um, that's behind everything, every act of creativity. And just because some people don't like it, the, the, the result of somebody else's creativity uh, doesn't mean that it didn't come from love, that love wasn't the engine. I think that's what Aspensky's whole chapter point is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so I think exactly. That's, that's no, no, exactly. There. Well, here's something, though. I, I, he says... Since we're able to trace how the energy of love transforms itself into instincts, ideas, creative forces on different planes of life, into symbols of art, song, music, poetry, so we can easily imagine how the same energy may transform itself into a higher order of intuition, into a higher consciousness, which will reveal to us a marvellous and mysterious world. Yes, we can easily uh -huh. imagine that, Espensky. Well, guess what? we can easily imagine the exact opposite. And that's a very interesting point to end up on, Pete, because I think you, you, you know, well said, it, it isn't just the good stuff, it's also the bad stuff, it's all the same creative force, just like, I guess, the gravity can work in your favour or against it. So thanks so much for joining me for part one, and uh, I look forward to your company next week. Yeah, I mean, in, in the second part, I'm looking forward to it as well, um, but I know that we're going to actually take the things that have been exasperating in this part and make them clear because there is clarity behind there is clarity behind the veil and we're going to expose the clarity behind the veil yeah thanks so much and thanks everyone for listening thank you all <laughs>